Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is on the law of the Lord, and on his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Welcome to the Bread of the Word podcast, a podcast striving to feast on God's Word and let the Bible speak to us all. Let us, as a former generation said, go ad fontes to the fountain and be nourished and sustained by all that God is. Let's dig in together. Well, hello, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Bread of the Word podcast, where we are going at Fontes, to the fountain, to the Word of God, to be nourished and sustained by all that God is, as he has revealed himself to us. And we are continuing our study in the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are actually going to be finishing chapter 8 today. So we are clicking away at this um, very rewarding book. It's a very challenging book, but a very rewarding book. And the next one we do after Ecclesiastes will be every bit as challenging and rewarding as we give time to the Song of Solomon. But... Today we'll be covering all of chapter 8, and for um, simplicity's sake, um, rather than reading it out beforehand, um, it would be um, easier to track with, I think, to go through it bite by bite. Just because there's a, there's a lot going on in chapter 8, but I felt that it couldn't be divided without taking away from the overall um, structure. And this will be... I think uh, some, something we've seen in other sections of Ecclesiastes, more so with poetry. Um, but this is written out um, in more like narrative form. But uh, it's, it's a difficult section to parse, is what I'm saying. And so, picking up in verse 2, um, it says, Keep the king's command because of your oath made before God. Do not be in a hurry. Leave his presence and don't persist in a bad cause since he will do whatever he wants. For the king's word is authoritative, and who can say to him, what are you doing? The one who keeps a command will not experience anything harmful, and a wise heart knows the right time and procedure. So, having spent time laying out, a, laying out this excursus on meaning and wisdom, um, we're entering a bit of a transitionary spot in this book, and Solomon is now turning a corner as he hits hard on application of what he's been laboring towards in the last seven chapters. And we have here a presentation of the idea of respect for authorities. And this sounds like what we would expect from something in the New Testament with like Romans 13, submit to the governing authorities. And that brings with it certain um, reactions, certain um, pre-assumptions, certain, certain, certain things like that. But we, we've got to look at this as Ecclesiastes, not Romans. Uh, we are reading 
wisdom poetry. We're reading Hebrew poetry centered on wisdom. We're not reading a didactic letter from an apostle. And so one thing is we've got to look at this as poetry, that there is something poetic about the incorporation of this idea. You know, one commentator notes on how to interpret Ecclesiastes, and he gives this warning in a book entitled Interpreting the Wisdom Books, an Exegetical Handbook. And he says, A certain measure of harmonization is a proper and necessary part of the reading process, for a reader must attempt to construct a coherent picture of an author's thought by interpreting one statement in light of another. The goal of reading makes the reader strive to discover coherency in the text. Harmonistic interpretations become object objectionable when they do injustice to specific passages, or perhaps we should say, to many passages, or when they use makeshift and arbitrary explanations to achieve consistency. Excessive exegetical ingenuity may take an author, may make an author consistent at the price of making him coherent, incoherent. And so that is a, that's a bold um, warning to us. So there is, um, there is, there is a risk that we run with trying to be ingenious in, in exegeting um, books like Ecclesiastes. That in the sake, for the sake of being original and coming off as smart and genius, we become incoherent. And while we may have some great things to say about Ecclesiastes, it is lost in the shuffle because we've got like the, like you see in the, the, the cop shows when they've got all the yarn behind them with all the pictures and it's complicated and nobody can really follow what you're saying. And I'm, this is true about myself every bit as everybody else that Ecclesiastes is hard. And it doesn't always make sense as we would like it to. That he is a very, he takes a position of the skeptic, he uses almost almost sarcasm, it seems, that he's saying things that sound contradictory, but aren't, because it's poetry. And there's a certain poetic flair to how he says things. And there's a certain linear construction of Ecclesiastes that we must acknowledge. In jazz music, melody, harmony, and rhythm come together to create a multi-dimensional composition. And likewise, Ecclesiastes is not restricted to one dimension of literary thought. So we've got to look at it as three-dimensional. Let us consider what Solomon is saying of this king in regards to what precedes and what follows the statement. So verse 1, it says, Who is like the wise person, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A person's wisdom brightens his face, and the sternness of his face is changed. So right off the bat, we've got this context of being about wisdom, the value of wisdom. And then he says, keep the king's command because of your oath before God. Do not be in a hurry. Leave his presence and don't persist in a bad cause, since he will do whatever he wants. For the king's word is authoritative, and who can say to him, what are you doing? The one who keeps a command will not experience anything harmful, and a wise heart knows the right time and procedure. For every activity, verse 6, there is a right time and procedure, even though a person's troubles are heavy on him. Yet no one knows what will happen because who can tell him what will happen? 
No one has authority over the wind to restrain it, and there is no authority over the day of death. No one is discharged during battle, and wickedness will not allow those who practice it to escape. All this I have seen, applying my mind to all the work that is done under the sun. At a time when one person has authority over another to his harm. So this section of on the king goes straight into there is for every activity there is a right time and procedure who has authority over the wind. I'm talking about death and time, and this echoes chapter three. There is an occasion for everything, and a time for every activity under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to kill. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to throw stones and a time to gather stones. A time to embrace and a time to avoid embracing. A time to search and a time to count as lost. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. So he's reincorporating that idea that everything has a time. That everything is fits in this puzzle. And this idea of a king brings us back to Israel's history with kings. They had good kings, they had bad kings. But not one of them was righteous by his own virtue. Every single king that Israel ever had could only be righteous through the imputation of the righteousness of, of God. They could only be counted as righteous by God. Um, we don't have a separate way that people were justified in the Old Testament. It was always faith alone, grace alone, through Christ alone. And while Christ had not come and as the final sacrifice, the Old Testament saints looked ahead to the Messiah who was to come, and that was the object of their faith, was the Messiah who would come and do away with sin perfectly, ultimately, and finally. However, the kings that we read about in the Old Testament are not ideal, more often than not. And there, there's a purpose to that we'll get to in a little bit later, but First Samuel chapter 8 first five verses says when Samuel grew old he appointed his sons as judges over Israel his firstborn son's name was Joel and his second was Abijah they were judges in Beersheba however his sons did not walk in his ways they turned towards dishonest prophet took bribes and perverted justice so all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. Now, that sounds fantastic at first. Now, let's have a king. Let's, let's take that next step. But why did they want a king? Because other nations have kings. But the whole concept of the Torah is that they are not like other nations. That they are God's people. That he has brought them to himself. That he has chosen for him Israel. 
not because they're they're on virtue, not because they were greater than the others, but but out of his covenant love for them. But they wanted something else. They wanted to be like the other nations. Judges chapter 8, we see this happen again in the story of Gideon. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. They have... That's This is a common theme in the book of Judges, is they forsook the ways of God, and God brought judgment, and they were... And they were exhorted to repent and turn back to God, and then they drifted away again. Because, why? We want a king. We want an earthly king. We want a human king. We don't want one of our people on that throne. We want one of our people calling the shots. But what does the psalm say? Psalm 75. We give thanks to you, God. We give thanks to you, for your name is near. People tell about your wondrous works. When I choose a time, I will judge fairly. When the earth and all its inhabitants shake, I am the one who steadies its pillars. The reality is that the ideal king was not a person, was not a man. Man was not good, is not good. He was not always right. Nonetheless, Solomon says there was a time to submit to this king, even when he has authority over another Quote, to his harm. How can we submit to this in an age where we talk about oppression and dismantling constructs and so, some of this rhetoric? Why would we submit to that kind of king? Why would we keep his commands? And this is why this section is in the midst of poetry, that there are two poetic uses of this little passage here on keeping the king's command. For the king's word is authoritative. Number one, because their days are numbered. Psalm chapter one says, The ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Psalm two says, Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron, thou shalt dash them like a potter's vessel. Be wise, therefore, O ye kings. Take, um, be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and he perish in the way, when his anger is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they who put their trust in him. <clears throat> So back to Ecclesiastes, verse 10. In such circumstances, this is here's some of the application here of this idea of the king and death. I saw the wicked buried. They came and went from the holy place. They were praised in the city when they did those things. This too is futile, as the CSB translates it. That, that Hebrew word we talked about is hevel, and it literally means vapor or smoke. Um, one local seminary professor in my area, um, he, he has put out a commentary on Ecclesiastes, and he translates Hevel as, keeps it as vapor or vaporous. So here he would say, this too is vaporous. 
Why? Because the sentence against an evil act is not carried out quickly enough. Is not carried out quickly. The heart of people is filled with the desire to commit evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, I also know that it will go well with God-fearing people, for they are reverent before him. Number two, regardless of the wickedness of a king, the wickedness of sinners, they're not the final authority. They will die. They will be judged, not by earthly means, but by God's means for their wickedness. Psalm 76 says, God is known in Judah. His name is great in Israel. His tent is in Salem, which means peace. His dwelling place in Zion. There he shatters the bow's flaming arrows, the shield, the sword, and the weapons of war. Psalm 74, God my king is from ancient times, performing saving acts on the earth. You divided the sea with your strength. You smashed the heads of the sea monsters in the water. Psalm, Psalm, Psalms has a lot of kingly language that it appropriates to God. Psalm 75, Psalm 74, 76. Right there you have a nice little section of kingly psalms about the reign of God. Not just over Israel, but over the world. And the, the dominion of God shall spread from sea to sea. When no earthly king would do, God assured them that a perfect king was to come. And we see this fulfilled in the New Testament as it is revealed in Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 speaks to this. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That is Levitical language talking about the Holy of Holies, where the priests would go behind the curtain and meet with God. And it was very it was very hush-hush. It was very um, closed off. Um, the common person did not go there. It was not their place. They had a mediator. Verse 20 says, Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner. Why? Because he has become a high priest forever, according to the order, the King James says, pattern of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Chapter 7 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave, gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also was he king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Notice that's not commentary I'm reading here. That's not somebody inserting this. This is what Hebrews says. Hebrews is explaining this to us. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though they also have descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. That's Jewish tradition. 
in this one case, men who will die receive a tenth. But in the other case, scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who receives a tenth, has paid a tenth through Abraham. For he was still within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. And this guy named Melchizedek, we read about him in very early on in Genesis. Uh, I forget the chapter off the top of my head, but the idea of Melchizedek is that he is what we call a type of Christ. Um, some would even say that it was Christ manifest in the Old Testament. Um, that the, if, if nothing else, we have the example. Could it have been a, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ? I don't think that's out of, out of the question. I don't think that's something um, that we would have issue with. Um, I'm not learned enough in uh, theology to stick my flag in the sand that this was Christ or this was a type of Christ. But regardless, we have Melchizedek, the priest-king, and God promised Christ as our priest and as our king. Revelation chapter 1 calls Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So we have Christ who did the priestly work of atoning for sin behind the curtain, but one who did so also as king. And the Lord reigns. But what do we do with this next bit? It will not go well with the wicked, and they will not lengthen their days like a shadow, for they will not be reverent before God. There is a futility that is done in the earth. There are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserve. I say that this too is Hevel. The presence of wicked kings um, and rigged rulings. This idea of wicked people cashing in. Um, this idea of wicked kings cashing in on an unjust system, on the fact that they're large and in charge, reminds us of the hevelity, as I would say, of life. They remind us that this life is but a vapor, and it is foolish to put all our hopes in the here and now. Um, James chapter 4 says, Come now. You who say, today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city, and spend a year there, and do business, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be. For you are like vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil, so it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. The, the use of time comes up in the application. We are vapor, as James says. Uh, memento mori, memento vitae. Remember, you must die. Remember, you must live. Verse 15 of Ecclesiastes 8. So I commended enjoyment, because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and enjoy himself. Why? For he will accompany him in his labor during the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So we come back to this reality, once again, that God has given every man all of his days on the earth. 
every good thing, every bad thing, flows from the hand of God. And again, we are encouraged by Solomon to take joy in things as they come, trusting in God's sovereignty along the way. The Lord has made us his, and works all things accordingly. Um, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, says, What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God elect? God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more has been raised. He also is the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of God? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are putting, being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Talking about persecution of the church. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I cannot help but throw out John 1. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things that were created were created. And apart from him, not one thing has been created that was created. And that is... That's a hard truth we have to reconcile. Boy's comments on this passage in Romans. Yes, there are plenty of enemies out there who are against us. And there is even an, an enemy within. But what are these when they are put into a sentence containing the verse's second half? First half, if God is for us... Dot, dot, dot. That is it, you see. I am sure you recognize that the word if in the sentence does not imply any doubt. For Paul has just banished doubt in the passage before this. He has shown how God has set his love upon us, predetermining that we are to be conformed to the likeness of his own beloved Son. Then, having made the predetermination, he has called justified, he has called justified and glorified us. In this verse, if means since. Since God is for us. And that makes the difference. It is as if Paul is challenging us to place all the possible enemies we can think of on one half of an old-fashioned balance scale, as if we were weighing peanuts. Then, when we have all the peanuts assembled on the scale, he throws an anvil on the other. That side comes crashing down, and all the peanuts are scattered. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can stand against God? The answer is nobody. Nothing can defeat us if the Almighty God of the universe is on our side. There is a tremendous gravitas to this assurance that is laid out by Paul in Romans 8. Um, it's been called by some the greatest chapter in the Bible, and I tend to agree. But that assurance that things are going to work out, that assurance that the wicked will be punished, that the righteous will be rewarded and upheld, and ultimately everything pans out in the end, 
that is only ours if we are in Christ. God has done a work we cannot fully understand or discern. What he asks us to do is trust him. In the same way that we couldn't that Job could not understand why must I must I suffer? Why must this endure? If you are good, if you are compassionate, if you are if you are God, why must this take place? And there's this long dialogue between Job and God. And God responds and says, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? We can't understand God. We can't understand why God would be so patient, so long-suffering, to see our filth, to see our wickedness, to see the evil that we bring into this world, and say, I'm going to make good out of it. I'm going to use this. There's a certain creative economy to the way God works, that nothing is wasted. In the same way that he makes the fish with gills and birds with wings, he takes human wickedness and he brings out something good that glorifies himself. And that, that's hard. Like I said, Ecclesiastes is hard. And it's not hard in the same way Romans is hard. This isn't deep theology. This is just hard application when life stinks. <clears throat> this is where the rubber meets the road in this thing we call the Christian life. I am an avid listener of jazz and classical music these days. I'm selectively tone deaf. Have been all my life. And, I've, and most styles of modern music sound the same to me. I was not aware of this until I began listening to classical music last year. I found some pieces by Bach and Strauss and Handel were appealing. But one day, I began listening to a Russian composer by the name of Sergei Rachmaninoff. And his music is structured with an ornate complexity that is beautiful to my ears. And I hear it in all of its fullness. To the point that when I go from listening to Rachmaninoff to something modern, it is as though I, I just lost hearing in one of my ears. And I'm no longer listening in stereo. And Rachmaninoff struggled with depression much of his life, and some of his greatest pieces were birthed out of such low periods. And one, at one point in his life, he wrote, I try to make my music speak simply and directly that which is in my heart at the time I am composing. If there is love there, or bitterness, or sadness, or religion, these moods become part of my music. And it becomes either beautiful, or bitter, or sad, or religious for composing music is as much a part of my living and breathing and of my living as breathing and eating I compose music because I must give expression to my feelings just as I must talk just as I talk because I must give utterance to my thoughts and I say all this because it relates to Ecclesiastes the application and downright acceptance of these truths that's hard that's uncomfortable. That is painful. And it says in Hebrews that he chastens every son that he receives. And if we have not chastening, 
we are illegitimate and not sons. The truths of this book that we call Ecclesiastes are far more complicated and nuanced than we would like them to be. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is one of the examples of when this thing we call the Christian life becomes incredibly difficult. Just like the composers of old, the songs we sing may not be happy tunes, but dirges of funerals. Our faces may be glistening with bitter tears. Because God is sovereign, but this hurts. This is hard. John Knox once wrote that the sons of God differ from the reprobate in that the sons of God recognize both prosperity and adversity to be from God, as Job doth witness. Job 2.10 says, Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall not receive evil? In closing, consider the weight of this psalm, which was birthed out of such bitter tears and harsh circumstances. And remember that God is near to those who are brokenhearted and crushed. Psalm 22. Some of us may recognize it because this opening line is quoted by Jesus when he is on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in you. They trusted, and you rescued them. They cried to you, and were set free. They trusted in you, and were not disgraced. But I am a worm, and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him, since he takes pleasure in him. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure at my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me, because distress is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water. All my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax, melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers have closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, Lord, don't be far away. My strength, come quickly to help me. Rescue me from the sword, my only life, from the power of these dogs. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of wild oxen. You answered me. I will proclaim your name. To my brothers and sisters, I will praise you in the assembly. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. All you descendants of Israel, revere him. For he has not despised or abhorred 
the torment of the oppressed. He did not hide his face from him, but listened when he cried to him for help. I will give praise in the great assembly because of you. I will fulfill my vows before those who fear you. The humble will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your, may your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember the Lord and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules the nations. All who prosper on earth will eat and bow down. And those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Even the one who cannot preserve his life. Their descendants will serve him. The next generation will be told about the Lord. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people yet to be born. They will declare what he has done. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Rest in that today. Thank you for listening. This has been the Bread of the Word podcast. Bread of the Word is a podcast ministry striving to feed people the wonderful words of God, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse, striving to let the word speak for itself. This ministry is also a member of the Truth and Love Network, a diverse fellowship of fellow podcasts of different theological backgrounds united in the gospel of God. For more from the Bread of the Word podcast or the Truth and Love Network, check out the links below and follow us on social media. Until next time, God bless. Matthew 4.4.